Good morning, everybody. Um, when I'm recording this, it is currently Monday morning. The reason I'm recording this a bit early is because uh, COVID has finally descended upon our household. I'm doing fine. Uh, my oldest son is doing fine. My younger son and my wife currently are down with it. And so I'm not really sure what what things are going to be looking like later this week. So I thought, you know, as long as I am feeling good, I'm going to go ahead and do this um, in the event that maybe by Thursday, I'm, I'm feeling like doing nothing but just sleeping a lot. So today, um, I'm, t- I'm doing something a little bit different. This is the first of a subscriber-prompted podcast. I know get excited. This is something, this is a new thing that I'm trying. So part of what I want to do for uh, paid subscribers is that I want to help. I don't want this thing that I do to just be self-directed. There's all sorts of questions that I think are interesting and things that I want to try to think about. And I do that a lot, but at the same time, you know, I want this to be in the spirit of Ivan Illich, as we've talked about the last few issues. I want this to be a bit more convivial. I want this to be something where I get to bring the specific training and specific experiences and specific opportunities to be a part of um, theological ethics as a profession. I want to bring a lot of this stuff into the main. And so um, in that sense, the, like the questions that I think are most interesting are not often the questions that other people think about and or want to have addressed or find interesting. There's lots of interesting things and the things that I think are interesting are not all that there is in the world. So uh, this one is the first one where I take on a question that is prompted by uh, prompted by a reader, by by a subscriber. Um, So my friend Kevin, who I've known for, gosh, more than half my life at this juncture, uh, passed along this essay from a guy named William McCaskill called The Case for Long-Termism. I've linked to it in the notes below. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at this particular essay and talk about it. Like what what benefit is there? Should How should Christians think about um, kind of what he proposes? And what do we make of this? So William McCaskill is a... Um, he is a philosopher by training. He teaches at Oxford. He is a fairly impressive person, uh, from what I can tell, from what I know of him, just by reputation. He is one of the founders of what's called effective altruism. Uh, what you doing? Sorry, I had a, I have a child interrupting. All right, good recording this from the home office, so you're going to get all the bumps and warts. So McCaskill uh, pioneered something called effective altruism, which proposes to do, um, um, to make use of data sets and make use of empirical evidence in order to do maximal good uh, with the resources that you have at hand. So philosophically, this is a species of what's something called utilitarianism. Utilitarianism has deep roots in Britain, dating back to the 18th century. Um, Best known for an essay by John Stuart Mill, just called Utilitarianism, which proposes that 
ethics is or the more like morality consists of doing maximal or increasing the maximal happiness and it doesn't mean like happiness in terms of like pleasure necessarily i think mill's definition of happiness is a bit more rich than that um, think of it more in terms of like good goodness it wants to produce like the maximum amount of uh happiness beatitude goodness for the greatest number of people so utilitarianism doesn't think in terms of like specific persons typically although there's different kinds of different varieties of utilitarianism that kind of get in the weeds of like what does it mean to produce the greatest number of happiness is it just like maxing out one person's happiness is it um should we think in terms of like uh, the like the greatest movement from unhappiness to happiness is that what it means to do this there's all sorts of kind of in-house arguments that i'm not going to get into here but basically what utilitarian does utilitarianism does is it doesn't think in terms of particular persons with respect to doing good it thinks of aggregate outcomes um it wants to max maximize happiness for a society in Utilitarians, again, kind of uh, disagree on how exactly that cashes out. Now, there's lots of contemporary proponents of this um, in the world of moral philosophy. Derek Parfit and Peter Singer are two of the better known names. McCaskill's kind of a young gun. He's about 10 years younger than myself and has, like I say, he's an impressive person. He pioneered something called effective altruism, um, teaches, and as best I can tell, like lives this out in his own personal life. Um, kind of, it's a very, it tends to be very, uh, very sacrificial in terms of its orientation that if I have an overriding obligation towards someone else's need that I have no justification for not taking that action. Right. Um, so again, probably looking at utilitarianism would be a whole different series unto itself, but long-termism. I think falls into this basic orientation of wanting to do the greatest amount of good for a society. Um, it has a, there's an interesting wrinkle here. Utilitarianism usually thinks in terms of immediate outcomes. Like what would it look like to do the greatest amount of good for those that are in front of us, for the society to which I belong? Uh, long-term, long-termism, premises that our ethics can't just be thought in terms of the present, but in terms of the future. That if I'm going to maximize goodness, I can't just think about those that are in front of me, but I have to think about the disenfranchised future, the future that doesn't have a voice, that I have to account for them. And so this is where uh, long term, this little article on long-termism comes in, is that it wants to steer the future onto a better trajectory. That's a quote from the article itself. And so um, it wants to ensure the future is good through our present actions. I'll just read a quick qu quote from here uh, that kind of gives you a sense of the article, but encourage you to read the whole thing. It's not very long. Um, he says, but now imagine that you live all future lives too. Your, your life, we hope, would just be beginning. Um, he says, when we look at the full scale of human history, the future comes to the fore. If you knew you were going to live all these future lives, what would you hope we do in the present? How much carbon dioxide would you want us to emit into the atmosphere? How careful would you want us to be with new technologies that can destroy or permanently derail your future? How much attention would you want us to give to the impact of today's actions on the long term? And so long-termism 
wants to bake into our considerations of doing good now and wants to bake the future in. And again, I think that's that's on the on the face a good thing uh, that we want to think about not just our own present good. We don't want to just use up all of the water and all of the resources because we will not be the last generation, Lord willing. Um, but we uh, we have obligations toward those that we have not met and toward those that we do not know. So let's turn over this article and see what uh, see what see what turns up. So there's basically two or three things, three things that I want to I want us to look at with respect to long termism and its vision of how we care for the future. Um, the first thing that we have to consider here is what kind of change does this outlook entail? So effective altruism, as I've already indicated. Um, tends to be very pragmatic in nature. It tends to be very direct. When it thinks about change, it thinks about immediate, tangible sorts of outcomes. It uses data and uh, empirical studies to help evaluate what kinds of change, given the money that we have, what kind, what, what will produce the maximal amount of change uh, right now. So kind of the example here is the effective altruists are known for, say, uh, buying mosquito nets for populations in which malaria is um, is really rampant. So good. So far, so good. It uh, produces tangible change. It lowers uh, malaria and covers medicine. This organization that McCaskill founds, um, he writes, it provides medicine to cure children of intestinal worms. It does a lot of sorts of things designed to have tangible impact. So the downside to, to effective altruism is while it does a great job of, of thinking about tangible outcomes, it doesn't really think in terms of, um, say, the, say, the systemic kinds of things that produce those tangible problems. So, for example, um, Hooray for providing mosquito nets for those that are suffering from malaria. But why is medicine for malaria in short supply in some places? Why is it far more expensive in, on the continent of Africa, where malaria is actually prevalent, than it would be, say, in Abilene, Texas, where I can get a malaria prescription for fairly inexpensive, uh, fairly inexpensively? Um these longer term questions are not the most effective and they don't do the most tangible good immediately. And so they're not really addressed by effective altruism. And so in some ways we wind up having to address the same sort of tangible problem over a really long period of time by not addressing the kind of long-term things that produce the tangible problems. So effective altruism, one cheer for effective altruism in the sense that it wants to address an immediate problem, but, um, only one year because it doesn't really want to take on kind of the longer term stuff. Um, these aren't effective. And so they kind of fall outside this, the framework here. Likewise, questions of virtue and character, the kinds of things that produce our imagination of what is good and help us to see, uh, think creatively about how we can enact that good. Uh, things which virtue, which helps us to consider what people need to flourish and which people should flourish again, these aren't really effective. Um, if you want to get, if you want to get a, uh, a a study of virtue funded, you can't go to an organization and say, you know what, 
I just want you to give me a bunch of money to think about how people become virtuous. They're going to want to know, how is this going to be actionable? What sorts of tangible outcomes are you going to produce? Which is effective altruism. Um, and so kind of the big picture things of why we only think about the solutions that we do, what is truly good for us, what do people need long-term to flourish. Um, effective altruism isn't particularly adept at dealing with those kinds of things. And so this is all important when we're thinking about long-termism, if, if it's an extension of effective altruism, because the kinds of solutions and the kinds of things that it's going to be oriented toward in the future will likewise be these fixes that will be uh, kind of the, what sorts of things will produce, can we do now to produce tangible outcomes in the future? It's not that these things are bad. It's not that, that as he uh, as he says, reducing carbon dioxide output or um, being careful with our new technologies is a bad thing. But that's a very limited notion of what the future might actually need. So the first, first thing I think we need to consider when evaluating something like long-termism in terms of thinking about the future is it has a very limited range of movement with respect to what the future might need. The second thing that I want us to consider here is how long-termism relates the present to the future. How does it connect the dots between our own good in the present and the future? So it does so by imagining, by kind of an empathetic imagination. We act on the future as we would want the, like we act toward the future as we would want ourselves, to, like if we were in the future, how would we want to be acted toward? Um, now we can't know in this kind of thought experiment where we fit into the future. We can't know if in if we were a part of the future generation, if we would be uh, born into a wealthy society or a poor society, we can't know whether, you know, what our, our state's going to be like. And so we have to proceed in kind of a veil of ignorance. Um, this, if you know the work of John Rawls, this should be pretty familiar ground. Rawls was a political theorist in the late 20th century. He proposed that when we're thinking about rules and we're thinking about democratic life, we have to kind of we have to operate on a veil of ignorance and uh, assume that in whatever future that we act on, that we we might be on the backside of that. So we wouldn't want to enact unfair laws because uh, I might be I'm, I might uh, be part of a, a group that would be uh, that this, this might come out negatively for. And so similarly with long termism. Um, when we're thinking about the future, we can't assume that I, if I'm thinking about what to do for the future, am going to be part of a society that will be buff, like buffered from the negative effects of the present. I can't assume, for example, that I'm going to be super duper wealthy in the future, and thus I can kind of ride out the effects of climate change by just cranking up the AC and going for broke. I have to probably assume that I'm probably not going to, that's probably not going to be me. And so I have to act for the future in a way that assumes that I'm going to be maybe without all the abilities to be um, like safe from the effects of the present. So um, this has some similarities to the golden rule that we act for others based on how we'd like to be treated. But um, 
this is where it differs from the golden rule. It's one thing to act toward, and as in the case of the golden rule, toward a person who is here because they can speak up and offer feedback. The golden rule, I think, is actually an invitation into fellowship because when I act toward another as I would want to be acted toward, um, they can receive the gift and offer their correction as to who I imagine that they are. That I do good towards some, or do what I think is good towards someone, and they can say, "Well, that's a good start." But here's what I actually need. It can become more dialogical. It's an, the golden rule is an invitation into a fellowship, into a, into a relationship. But what you get here with long termism is kind of it's it's pretty one sided, right? I'm acting toward the future in a way that I imagine the future to be, not as kind of this independent entity, but as an extension of myself in all sorts of limited ways. Um, so the relationship to, of the future to the present um, for long-termism winds up being fairly hypothetical. We don't know the particulars of who the future is, and so I have to kind of act blindly and just hope for the best. So this gets to where I think long-termism's vision of how we relate to the future um, actually runs aground and could actually benefit from a different way of thinking about relating to the future. So when I think about my relationship to the future, I don't think about it in the way that long-termism does as this hypothetical generation that exists, but I think of it in terms of an actual one and one which lives in my house with me. Um, and I, here I'm thinking of, I'm speaking of my two children. Then when I think about acting for the future, I don't think of it in terms of like hypothetical future. I think of it in terms of the two people that um, live in my house and who will need things in the future that I will not be there to provide. I think of it in terms of, in the adage, like growing, helping to grow a tree that I won't sit in the shade of. That when I think about the future, my relationship to the future is begins not with a hypothetical generation, but with those who are actual, who are younger than myself. And so I think a, like a, a theological version of long-termism begins not by imagining a hypothetical future, which winds up being just an extension of who I am, but with the tangible presence of the future that is always in front of us. Um, in the faces of our children, in the faces of those who are being born now, and by entering into conversation with them about what they need and what um, what their future might um, might look like. So long termism, not a, I mean, it's a good place to begin, but it ultimately winds up being limited um, in that it proposes that the future ultimately will be determined by the things that I can foresee in the present, that the future is going to be just an extension of myself and my own priorities and my own, um, my own visions of the limits that the future will have. It, it just winds up being an extension of myself in a lot of ways. Um, whereas if you begin thinking about the future by beginning to talk about those who will be a part of that generation, i.e. children, um, you begin to get a very different sense because you begin to understand that uh, there are some things that we can do for the future that will eliminate risk as he wants to do. 
but there's a lot of things that they will have to, there's a lot of questions that I can't anticipate that they're going to have to face. And so how do I help them to do that best? Um, we do, how do we act, for, how do we do good for the future? We do it, I think, not purely by hypothesizing about what the future will um, will need and, and acting in uh, the way of effective altruism only. But we begin by thinking about the ch- by children, the young, and by thinking about their concrete good. They are passing through institutions that are helping to shape their future. So we begin by um, working on those institutions that, that are at hand for their flourishing. We begin by letting the, our changes that we hope for the future be very specific and concrete and not simply... Um, not only those things would, that will influence kind of their environmental conditions. The future that long-termism acts on, interestingly, is it's, it's both an immediate one and an anonymous one. So it, it, it proposes to act on a future which doesn't actually have any faces, which doesn't actually have any specificity to it. Whereas most people, I think, um, when we think about acting for the future, we think about acting for it on the basis of particular persons that we know who will we can have some effect on, but we'll have to deal with a lot of things that I can't yet foresee. So um, recently I've been watching um, I've been watching Succession on HBO, and I don't want to recommend it for a whole lot of reasons because it's um, it's the whole cast is terrible and there's all the characters are awful um they're interesting for reasons that maybe i'll talk about in the future but um yeah i don't really want to recommend it but it uses this analogy here of what it means that one of the storylines that it's that is going on in the show currently is how do we act on behalf of the future do we do it in kind of this um do we do it in a way which is characterized by the quarterly profit and doing immediate impact that is in some ways the ethos of effective altruism, or do we do it in kind of a long-term vision, trying to recognize that we have, we are living in the, we're living with the fruit of centuries of bad habits and trying to slowly turn that ship. So there's no doubt that our generation is inheriting the fruit of centuries of bad habits, both morally and um, ecologically, and so the impulse to do immediate change isn't without merit, but the downside is that we wind up changing the future just to be more like ourselves and less like what it might be. Um, as Christians, I think we need to take a longer-term vision here of what future good means, that there are some things which we can do immediately, but there are a lot of things that we have to invest ourselves in um, that will bear long-term fruit. And here I'm talking about things like, um, the virtue of the young, of like the character of persons of, um, long-term structural investments, which will play out over the course of decades and not months. Um, as Christians, I think we can lean hard on a doctrine of providence in a couple of in a couple of ways. We can lean on it in a way which gives us an excuse to not act, that the future is in God's hands, and so there's really nothing I could do about it. But there's a way of leaning into it in, I think, a good way, which uh, allows the future to be the future 
and not just an extension of the present, that it truly is in God's hands, but not in a way which denies us um, responsibility for doing the things which we should do, some of which are short-term, um, but most of which, I think, are long-term, that we are constantly in the process of helping trees to grow that we will never sit in the shade of. This is, I think, the Christian the Christian imagination of the future, that the future is not just an extension of the present, but it is a thing which is always exploding into our imaginations and into, into view. When Jesus talks about receiving the kingdom of heaven, I think this is what he means, that the kingdom of heaven is that which is always coming and is always showing up. And it frequently will show up in ways that do not comport to the present. And so likewise, with respect to how we think about the future, we have to remember that the future does depend upon present actions, but in large part, it is going to be its own thing. It will have challenges that we cannot anticipate. And so what the present can do is to invest in those long-term sorts of things which are good and true and worth preserving uh, in the future. Not simply uh, only thinking about stopping the bleeding, but in terms of like long-term flourishing kinds of things, which just fall out of the range of effective altruism and, in this case, long-termism. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, again, uh, this is a feature that I want to try to offer primarily to uh, if you have if you have things that you want to see addressed and things you want to hear me ramble on about at eight o'clock in the morning, then send them along. Um, but I want to try to offer this as a as a as a benefit for paid subscribers. So this is you. If this you are a paid subscriber and you're hearing this, then send me your stuff. Send me your stuff you want to hear about and want me to want me to talk about. All right. Hope everyone is doing well, and hopefully by the time this uh, drops on Thursday, I will be still COVID-free and getting on with the rest of my day. All right. Take care.